Listeners, hello. Welcome back to Habit Helps, a podcast of Creekside Community Church in San Leandro, California, where we talk about how habits build you and about how you can build better habits. My name is Jeff Bruce. I'm one of the pastors here at Creekside. I am joined today by a man who holds an elite time in the 100-meter butterfly for the 65 and over age group. (laughs) This is an elite athlete we're talking to here. Masters swimmer, a master of habits, my dad and fellow pastor, John Bruce. Dad, how are you? I am habitually good. Habitually good? (laughs) No, I'm fine. No, I'm I'm certainly not a master in the 100 fly anymore. Really? No. Dad, if a guy your age, how how many of them? Of a guy my age who didn't know how to swim, I could probably beat him. <laughs> you could own that dude <laughs> in the hundred fly. That's good. <laughs> oh, well, today we are going to continue our series on the habits of healthy community. The habits of healthy community. The church is the family of God, and as we have said during this series, that means the church is not a what. It's a who. It's not an event or a gathering, fundamentally. Church is not a a corporation. It's a people. It's the people of God. Dad, I was thinking about that today. I think that mind shift is very hard for people to grasp in our culture. What do you think? I, I agree. I think we are so individualistic that thinking as a people of anything does not come natural to most people. Right. And thinking as the people of God, as the family of God, is even more unnatural for American Christians. Yeah, and so I think when we do start talking about church or going to church or these things, because of that mental architecture that's already in place, people immediately go to the church being some thing extrinsic to them. Right. It's an event, it's a program, it's a ministry... It's a building. Yes. And um, I think one of the ramifications of that in our culture is that you can feel connected to a church without being meaningfully connected to any of its people. Right. Right. Yeah, just like you can be connected to a grocery store without knowing the clerks. Yeah, or a football team. Yeah, exactly. Without personally knowing any of the the players. But there's these institutional channels, uh, preaching... The worship is amazing. You resonate with a cause the church promotes. Um, Maybe there's some program or ministry the church provides that you feel passionate about. But it strikes me that that way of doing church will not breed commitment. No, our growth. Our growth. I mean, personal, spiritual growth. We need each other. And I I was thinking about that today because I was reading a Barna survey that they conducted right before COVID, February of 2020 and they were surveying American attitudes toward church. And they were talking to, you know, different subgroups, committed Christians, churched adults who go occasionally, but they said two-thirds of, two-thirds of churched adults say they attend church because they, quote, enjoy doing it. That's uh, 65%. Same is true for four and five practicing Christians. 82% they go because they enjoy it. But uh, they go on to say, while most churchgoers attribute positive feelings to their participation in church, Half of Christians agree that church as usual, quote-unquote, is declining in popularity. Hmm. And, and it strikes me, when they say church as usual, what they actually mean are church services as usual. Yeah. yeah. That people are bored, 
with the way that we are doing church services. Yeah. And what is so interesting to me is that if you stick with this model of the, the way to engage people in church is to make programs more enticing or more engaging or more innovative, then you have to continue innovating all the time to, be, to make things more enticing or entertaining yeah. for people. Yeah. And it's exhausting. And it actually doesn't work. Um, and, and I think we saw that during COVID, right? Because what did we have at the beginning of COVID? This chance to innovate. Everyone got to try church in a new way. And we said, well, online church, which is sort of an oxymoron, but online church is going to be this new innovative thing, all these new delivery methods. It's going to be more convenient than ever to connect with the people of God. And so we tried it. Online viewership spiked really early. We thought this is going to be a game changer. And then what happens a few months later? It just falls off a cliff. Yeah. It, it declines precipitously because people are already bored with it. Yeah. Then they're already looking for other content delivery systems for whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it just strikes me that, that we have a long way to go culturally in reframing what church is, particularly after COVID. Yeah. Um, and what people can expect. And I hope that one of the byproducts of COVID is that people realize how empty it is to be connected to the church without being connected to God's people. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a passive experience. It's not sitting and consuming. That that's, doesn't matter how good the product is, eventually that gets old. Mm-hmm. Um, it is actively participating with a community of people. Right. And, and helping each other, being helped by people, growing together, loving each other. All those things. And I was thinking about that, just reading in Hebrews today, right? The exhortation um, not to forsake fellowship in Hebrews 10.24. Yeah. And and it's interesting, the reason why we shouldn't forsake fellowship that he gives, because he doesn't focus on the amazing worship experience or the benefit to us spiritually. It's about encouraging others. Yeah, yeah. It's about the need for our faithfulness in other people's lives and seeing their need for us to continue in the faith, yeah. which is just so completely unlike the way that, that often church is perceived yeah. in our context. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a big part of why we're doing this series, is because the church is a who and not a what, it's a people, then the health of the church is not so much about perfecting our programs as it is about getting our relationships right. Yeah. That, that what's going to determine the health of the church is the health of the relationships within the church, yeah. not the excellence of our programming or anything else, however important that might be. Well, we can perfect our program, and then it'll be outmoded in a couple of years, you know, and uh, something better will come along. Yeah. But it's perfecting the people. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what we're called to. Right. And, and that's really why we're looking at, at Romans 12, because Paul gives us a blueprint for what healthy community looks like and the kind of practices that will cultivate health. So we've looked at a bunch of these imperatives that Paul gives, and today we are looking at Romans 12, 14, where Paul says this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Blessing those who persecute you, another way of saying that is that a healthy community is a gracious community. Right. Dad, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it seems that this habit would apply to our relationships with people outside the church who you would assume would be the ones that would persecuting you. Right. Um, 
being slow to take offense and quick to uh, return good for evil, I think is is absolutely essential to experiencing New Testament um, community. Yeah. Uh, it, it, nothing is more natural than treating people the way they treat us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet if we treat people the way they treat us, we're not going to have much of a community because uh, it's going to be constant retaliation and, and hurt feelings and, and jumping back. Jesus said, if you're nice to people who are nice to you, what credit is that to you? Even, even the non-believers do that. Uh, but if you, if you bless those who curse you, you right. do good to those who hate you, then you become sons of your Father, who is good to both the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Yeah. It strikes me it's an odd command in this context, yeah. because I think it is um, talking primarily about those outside the Church yeah. and, and how the Church should respond to um, societal pressure coming from the outside, and you see that in verses 16 through 21, where... Paul goes on to expand on what it means to bless those who curse you and why you don't retaliate and what you do instead. And it's obviously deeply rooted in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. And so, yeah, I guess why would he include it here? It it seems out of place. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's a couple of reasons. One is, is that our character is to reflect Christ's character. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus says, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, um, do good to those who hate you, so you may be sons of your Father. And so in all our relationships, we are to to demonstrate what, what God is like. And then secondly, people are people. Whether they're Christians or non-Christians, there are people are going to do things that, that bug you, that get that hurt you or things like that and the thing that's to differentiate the church is how we deal with those hurts how we deal with people who fail us and betray us and ignore us and and all those things and that's one of the keys to keeping this fellowship healthy and going is that we don't uh treat people the way they treat us but we treat people the way god treats us right yeah i think that's true, you can obviously extend the application of the first to within the Church, that uh, if we are to love our enemies, um, then certainly how much more people in, in the family of faith who um, mistreat us yes. in some yeah. way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think in my experience, it is so common for someone, their first negative experience with the Church to just run for the door. Yeah, yeah. People have high expectations. Yeah, and and they think that if people are Christians, they should be perfect, and everyone should love me and treat me like the most important person in the world. And and when that doesn't happen, uh, they're disappointed, and they they don't want that intimacy with those. I don't want to be in community with that person. Right. He, he bugs me, and so I think that's why this command is found where it's found, mm-hmm. is because this is uh, a, a command that applies to every human relationship. Right. Yeah, and and we could go into all sorts of other passages about being forbearing, right? Patient, um, patiently enduring evil, as Paul says yeah. to to uh, Timothy in Second Timothy two. So, yeah, what does it look like, and what doesn't it look like? Because I already anticipate the pushback you'll get the minute you bring this up is 
how do you avoid take being taken advantage of, you know, abusive situations? How do you deal with that? Uh, and yet there are these clear imperatives in scripture that we are not supposed to treat people like they deserve to be treated. Right. Right. And so, so what does it look like? What doesn't it look like? I, I think it's the commands of God do not contradict each other. Right. So we have to we have to keep all the commands in mind when we're dealing with the situation. Right. Primary command: I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Mm-hmm. Love God, love people. Yeah. Too great. Everything depends on that. And so I've got to start with loving. And and uh, I, I just think of what Jesus says in in John 15: As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. Right. Abide in my love. Yeah. If you keep my commandments. You'll abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So yeah. pretty amazing things. Jesus says, to the extent that God loves me, I love you. Right. And <laughs> uh, I want you to experience that love right. on an ongoing way. And the way you'll experience that love is the way I experience my Father's love, by keeping his commandments. Right. I don't keep his commandments so he'll love me. I keep his commandments because he loves me. Right. And the same thing will be true for you. I say these things that my joy may be in you and your right. joy may, will be made full. And so joy in life is not the result of how people treat me. It's a result of how I obey Jesus. Right. And and so I get into a situation, yeah. if I take revenge, if I react to the person, if I, if I treat them the way they deserve to be treated, I leave that with just an ugly feeling inside of me. But when I treat them the way Jesus has treated me, and I love them, and I return good just as he returns good to me, I live with his joy. And so that, that to me, is, is foundational. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't keep his other commands to speak truth right, and to stand against evil and all these things, but it has to yeah. be done on a foundation of love. Right, or avoid such anger. people or those kind of commands, right? I yeah. mean, there's other... There's other um, Right, commands related to church discipline and all sorts of things that oh, could yeah. be brought brought to bear. But I think the fundamental thing that, that Paul is getting at, that Jesus is getting at, that governs our human relationships is really a non-retaliatory yeah. spirit, yeah. that we don't return tit for tat yeah. in these things. So if we get cursed, we don't curse in return. Yeah. If we get slandered, we don't slander in return. If we get abused, we don't abuse in return. That, that I think, is the fundamental idea here. Yeah. And I think the question is, well, won't people walk all over you? And Jesus answered that when he when he said, if if someone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, as soon as you go with him two miles more than he asks you, you're you're in control. You've taken over the situation. Mm. And you're not you're choosing to to be more gracious even than he demanded. Right. And so you've got a you've got a bigger agenda here. Um, yeah, you're not responding to him. Yeah, exactly. You're responding to God. Right. Yeah. So so how, I mean, here's the question. How do relationships, I, I still think this is about outsiders, but I'll take your point that this can be applied to every relationship. So, so, so we should apply it uh, within the people of God. How do Christian relationships degenerate into retaliatory relationships? What does that look like? Um, for that to happen? Well, it's everyday thing. If, if a person responds in anger to me yeah. or frustration or something like that, my automatic natural response is to respond in kind right. to them yep. and, and to, re- to meet anger with anger, yeah. to, to meet argument with argument. 
Yeah. Hurt with hurt. Mm-hmm. And so I have got to have the self-control to stop and, and, and to, to stop that cycle, cycle. Yeah. by asking Jesus to be Lord of my heart and my life and help me to obey him in this situation and not react uh, to my natural fleshly instincts right. and do what he would do in that situation. Right. Um, and so I think that and it, it is a, a practice ta- uh, skill. It's a habit um, <laughs> that we have to practice in order, because we are not naturally that way. We, we are naturally reactive yeah. rather than responsive to God. And so I have to have it in my mind that when somebody, I, I just, the thing that helps me is just to, to, the first thing that happens with something like that, I give thanks. I thank, thank God internally for this. Because he's going to use it for my good. He's he's behind this. He, this is the testing of my faith, which produces endurance, and and I need to let patience have its perfect result. And so this is a this. I'm in the gym. I'm I'm learning the skill of patience here. And when I when I make that one little transition and and get my eyes off the person as the source of my problem, and get my eyes onto Christ as the who set this whole thing up for my good it changes everything yeah and that is a skill to discipline yourself in this situation that yeah. that Christ is training me how to become like him and Christ suffered and he was persecuted and that means he was mistreated in certain situations yeah. and now what i do in response to that right now is going to determine whether i learn this lesson or not exactly. and develop the right skill exactly. and seeing that bigger picture is is huge. I, I think one thing that struck me about this is loving people who hurt you. I think there's two ways to be retaliatory toward people in these situations. I mean, there's more, but the two that come to mind are really have to do with the fight or flight yeah. reflex. Yeah. Uh, when someone, you're in a community group and someone voices an opinion you find offensive or says something kind of thoughtless and insensitive, um, or you're in an intractable conflict with someone and it just feels like you, you can't get past it, you can either go at them and continue to go at them, or I think the more subtle thing to do is just be cool toward them and start to distance or to say, well, you know, I don't really feel at home in this group, so I'm going to find another one. Or I don't, you know, that person isn't going to change. They're kind of set in their ways. It's not worth talking about it. Or, you know, it's, it's clear that we just are irreconcilable in this and see things differently. And, um, are, and, and you begin to create these narratives into your head as to why you need to create relational distance from this person. The person isn't an imminent threat to you in any way. Yeah. You just dislike being around the person, yeah. even though they're in the family of God. And, and the subtle thing that can happen is you just create distance because it's easier to create distance and be indifferent toward them than it is to actually lean in and figure out how to love them. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, it, you're absolutely right. That's, I think that's the more typical response in our culture is to just back away from the relationship and just be quiet and, and, uh, and create this wall between you. And I'm not going to ever let that person get close enough to me to hurt me again. I might not even leave. I might maybe a situation I can't leave. But, you know, there'll always be a certain distance between us because um, I just don't agree with them or they hurt me or or whatever. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he says, bless those who curse you. What does it mean to bless? Right. Yeah. To call for God's favor on their life. Yeah. And and to be a blessing to them. And and I think that's the counterintuitive genius of this 
is that when I seek to be a blessing to somebody, when I seek to do them good, when I seek that, that just takes away that feeling of hurt, that feeling of anger and, and frees me from that. And I really begin to experience Christ's love for that person. Um, cause, cause we, we curse him every day. We right. disobey him every day. We turn away from him. We abandon him every day. We, we do things that hurt him every day. And yet he never stops blessing us and yeah. guiding us and stuff like that. That's so, good. So it's all the process of becoming like Jesus. That's, that's the point. Yeah, and I hope what people see in that is there is something liberating about it, where I don't, oh, yeah. I don't have to be controlled by this other person's behavior. Yeah. Where I am... Um, I, I can actually seek to overcome evil with good, yeah. which is what Paul goes on yeah. to, to say, which obviously involves truth-telling and all of these other measures uh, as needed to bring someone to repentance. And so, but, but you, you have to start with a heart of forgiveness yeah. and a desire for the other person's good, because if that isn't there as the fundamental thing, then you can't enact the gospel in the way that you are going to treat the person. Right. It's about either winning or punishing or retaliating. Right. Um, and that won't be Christ-like. Yeah, yeah. In your response, now, I remember um, probably for younger people they don't know the name Madeline Murray O'Hare, but Madeline Murray O'Hare was was a famous atheist uh, in the last generation and and uh, really tried to make Christians' lives miserable. And one of the things that that Christians did was they debated her. They would debate her on the radio or on TV and yeah. stuff like that. And and Walter Martin, who was a famous Christian apologist would often debate Madeline Murray O'Hare. And, and she, after a debate one time, she says, you know, Walter, of all the people I've debated, you're the only one I think really loves me. And uh, just, a, you know, it, it, she didn't, she, she did not agree with what he said, but she could not deny the love that she felt from him. Yeah. And, and that's what people should experience from Christians. Yeah. They, sh- they should say, you know, I, I may not agree with this person, but I cannot deny that this person genuinely cares about me. This person genuinely loves me. And I think that's that's what, what Paul is talking about here. Yeah. So there's principles that can be gleaned, I think, about just what do you do in disagreement or painful relationships within the family of God. But I, I want to extend it out to, I think, what Paul is getting at here, which is really how do you engage with um, those outside the community of faith who um, are going to be hostile towards you in some way. Yeah. And and so what does a healthy community look like when it's responding to outsiders and outside hostility, um, if that makes sense? Yeah. Well, I think the community looks like the individual. Um, what we do as a group, how can we bless these people that are persecuting us, how we can, how can we be a blessing and do good to these, these folks? Um, I just think, you know, the Christians during the, the two great plagues that, that decimated the Roman empire and everybody was running, trying to get out of, out of town. And people would actually throw family members out on the streets and lock the doors behind them because they were so afraid of catching the plague from their own family members and the Christians who were despised, I mean, they were absolutely despised by yeah. Roman society, were the ones who were taking people with plagues into their homes and caring for them. They were the ones that weren't leaving the cities. They weren't fleeing, but they were, ob- they were just living sacrificial lives. And it caused a complete flip 
in people's perception of Christians and began a, a great revival and awakening yeah. and as many many people came to the church because they they said this is these are the one pe- one group of people I can count on these are the one a group of people that won't reject me that 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 will be here for me and be able to help me and so it's easy to think well they don't like me I'm a Christian I better stay away from them when in fact it is their hostility that gives you your greatest opportunity for witness because you're responding just as Christ responded to people who hated him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that is um actually God's strategy for engaging the world is uh a church that uh is committed to blessing people who are in opposition to Yeah. Him. Yeah. And it's going to look different in different places and in different ages of the church, but the, the, the church's core beliefs are always going to be in conflict with the dominant culture yeah. in one way or the other. But uh, I like what Peter says, that, you know, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those outside the community of faith, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God yeah. on the day of visitation. Yeah. And so I think that's a really helpful reminder for believers in our age that, A, you're going to be spoken against by certain segments of society, and your good deeds should be visible as they speak against you. Yeah. So yeah. that means, A, that you don't hope for cultural favor as a mark of your effectiveness as a Christian. Right. I think sometimes when we think about loving those outside the church, the hope is, well, we have to do image management for the church. Oh, the church has such a bad reputation, and if all oh, the church only had a better reputation. And that's just a very hard indicator to knock down, to, to pin down, to say, you know, how is the world viewing the church? And okay, when the world views the church a little better, then we'll know we're making an impact. Uh, I mean, when the world views the church better, the world will become the church. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so it's it's hard to use that as the barometer. So instead, we go what we look at us. Are we being faithful to bless the people around them, to serve them, to love them, even if they view certain things about our commitment to Jesus as you know, quote unquote, toxic? You know, yeah. whether it's our commitments to to sexual practices or or whatever. Um, yeah, and they will. And, and and so I just think it's important to realize that a we can't seek cultural favor as the motivator for doing these good deeds, but B, nor can we withdraw from the culture and despise people and go, well, this is, you know, I live in an area where it's hostile to my faith, so I can't thrive here or something like that. It's like, that's always been the case, that there's hostility, and we're always called to do good to those, even if they exhibit hostility toward us. And so um, uh, you you can't have kind of a separatist um, impulse or an impulse to assimilate. Yeah. You have to resist both the assimilation impulse and the separatist impulse to actually be faithful to Jesus. Exactly. Or to fight against. I mean, you know, the, the other impulse is to go to war with. Right. And uh, no, it's, it's a great point. Yeah. Uh, no, if the, if the world is applauding us, if people who hate Jesus are applauding us, there's a problem. We missed something there. Yeah, we, yeah we're, we better worry about our own, our own house. Right. And yet, as you said, when people hate you, it is a unique opportunity to demonstrate Christ to them. Yeah. And who Jesus really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and if you get to the root of why people hate you, it's it's an excellent clarifying opportunity. Yeah. To be like, you know what? If it's because of my beliefs, 
then this is great. We can actually talk about how my beliefs are different than yours. Because I agree, there's a chasm between our beliefs and our starting points. And that's actually a good point because then they have the gospel clarified for them. And they understand the difference it is to be a Christian. Exactly. I think that's a tremendous advantage to be in that position because the hard culture to reach to me, um, I mean, they all take the spirit of God, but what's challenging from a human perspective is when people assume that your priors are the same and that yeah. you're, you're, you're operating out of the same worldview and, and there's this veneer of Christian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and yet you feel like, no, I'm not on the same page as these people. Yeah. That's harder to, to work with in a sense than, than having a nice, clean, bright distinction between your views and the views of the people around you. And I think along with that, if people don't see that our faith costs us something, they can't see the reality of our faith. And and so if, if it's just easy, if we're in a culture where it's easy to be a Christian, everybody's a Christian, you know, we've really lost our edge. Yeah, what difference does it make? Yeah, what difference does it make? Yeah. But they can see, you know, these people are really out of step, and it doesn't seem to bother them. Um, they they really have some their faith is deep and i think a healthy community we could say then in terms of its engagement in society has a joyful out of stepness yes with culture yeah so they aren't defensive about their views or combative necessarily um they, they will defend their views and can articulate their views but they aren't embittered as they do so but are are joyful yeah in their allegiance to jesus and joyfully acknowledge that it will put them out of step with the world. Yeah. And so there's a, a humble confidence in their convictions um, and in the sense that they are they are dissonant in their beliefs with the people around yeah. them and that that's fine. Yeah. And that they're comfortable living in that dissonance and that tension in, in, in one sense. because And that, I think, is a powerful testimony. That's the first Peter testimony of you're a sojourner, you're an exile, you're a citizen of a different kingdom, you are assured of his coming victory, you are here as an ambassador, and so you don't assume ever that the world is going to uphold your particular kingdom priorities or values. Yeah, yeah. Now, Ray Stebman used to call that no offense, no defense, no pretense. And I, I like that. It just... Uh, you're just secure in who you are. Sounds like a great sermon outline yeah. right there. <laughs> so, gonna have to steal that at some point. Like all good sermon content stolen from somebody that's at right. some point. Well, good. Any other thoughts, Dad? I think that's it. Yep, it for me. So thanks, Thank uh, and thanks, listeners, yeah. for listening in. We'll be back to talk more about the habits of healthy community. In the meantime, hey, go connect meaningfully with the people of God. Form those deep relationships because that's what Jesus has saved us for. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.